0: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, we should say host, but also agents with Oakland Realty in Vancouver. This is a great show today. We've got Corey Wright. He is the managing director of William Wright Commercial Real Estate Services, great friend of the show, co-host of the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, and someone that we look to for investment advice,
2: we look to uh, for investment advice in the commercial space all the time. Past guest fan favorite, right? Top forty under forty, finalist for the Ernst and Young Entrepreneur, uh, Entrepreneur of the Year. of
0: The, year. the accolades, the just a-
2: continue. I know it's it's incredible, and uh, and it's exciting that he's the host of the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate podcast that is first, our sister show. Yeah, you first say?
0: person I know to fall off a stationary bike. <laughs> he, he also holds that. Uh, <laughs> That award. (laughs) Only person, I should say.
2: But you Uh, know what? It it is great having Corey back because what we really did was halfway through the year, basically, brought Corey into the studio to check in on the commercial real estate market, especially in light of various markets, especially in the United States. Sure. really, really basically collapsing in, yeah. in a lot of ways. How has British Columbia fared? How has Vancouver fared? And then secondly, and we've talked a little bit on the show before about his investment philosophy, Right, and he's a very, very active investor. He's one of the quickest he's, moving... He's got a deal on the go every week. He's he's, he's, he's always got always a deal something. on the go. Okay. But I mean, he has a very... Uh, he's He has an investment philosophy that is very clear and he
0: yes. can articulate it very well and it is very smart so we brought him back to talk about that and it's even more than that though because we're we're also talking about how he analyzes deals how he analyzes markets tricks that he uses to go into certain markets and these are applicable in commercial but they're very applicable in residential uh, 100% so if you're somebody that you're just looking to become a better better person who, uh, better thinker around real estate. Yeah, about real estate. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. And, and of course, you know, by virtue of that, you'll become a better real estate investor, but this is definitely the episode for, for you for sure.
2: Yeah. And you might need to listen to it twice because, uh, one thing about Corey is he can be texting somebody laughing at a joke and explaining a complicated deal at the same time in about 10 seconds. And you're like, man, you're, uh, there's a reason you're as successful as you are. One of the few guys we know who can
0: walk and chew gum. (laughs) It's it's an incredible thing. <laughs> uh, Matt, uh, what do we got before we cut to this conversation with Corey? What do we have before we cut to this talk?
2: We have Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. One thing I just wanted to say, Adam, is the sold plan yes. is still going strong. This is sell with us. There's a button on our website. You get the sold plan. It comes up in real time. You don't have to wait for it,
0: Adam. What exactly is this old plan? It's our most downloaded document to date. It's the it's it's the most popular VRep document we've put out, and it's available uh, for free. And essentially, what it is is it's a step by step guide about how to get your property ready for market in about a two week window, right? And this is really something that we've. Used and tried and tested over the past almost 15 years, we've crafted. hundreds of homes sold. Right, this is essentially what we use, and this is how we get properties ready before we list. It's open to everybody. It's open. If you're an agent, you want to download it, feel free. If you own a home and you're thinking of selling in the next, you know, six months, one, three, five years, it's evergreen. It's going to be great advice for you today. Also, great advice for you tomorrow. Head over to the site, sell with us is how you get it, and uh, just click click on the button and you'll get an instant download. The, the last thing I just want to say, Adam, is we just, we, so we started our
2: Instagram career at the start of this year, really. We, we started thinking about this. We just rounded the 6,000 mark. For posts or people? For people. Yeah. people, Not posts, uh, getting getting there. But uh, yeah, 6,000 people. It's a lot of fun. I think this has been a really social... It's funny that in 2023, you can say, I'm really glad we're getting on this social media thing. You know,
0: uh, <laughs> I had a real... Well, we've both, and we've talked about it over the years on the show, but we both have had kind of a hate on for, for being on social for a variety of reasons, right? You find it a distracting, or maybe you find that it, you know, the peaks and valleys of like... Right. You the know, dopamine, hits. the dopamine hits and drops, or whatever you want to call them, but we both had it off our phone for a long time. But it was actually a good friend of the show, Clint Murphy, Clint Murphy, I think, and also uh, another good friend of the show, uh, Jaden uh, Jaden Lee, who who said social media is is almost how you curate it, right? And I think that's right. that's the big thing. So like what we've been focusing on is going through and and. If if all you're actually seeing in your social media is stuff that you're learning from and and stuff that's and positive interested in, yeah. and interested in, it can actually be a super valuable resource. So what we're trying to do is add value with our uh, social media channel. So Vancouver Real Estate Podcast you can go over there. Hopefully you're going to learn about real estate. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that we're putting out on a daily basis.
2: Join more than 6,000 others.
0: (laughs) But yeah, let's, uh, let's talk, let's cut to our
2: talk with Corey. This is a fantastic one. I think we should just get to it. All right. Enjoy. This is Corey Wright. This podcast is presented by Impact Commercial.
0: Okay, so we're here with Corey Wright. He is the managing director at William Wright Commercial Real Estate Services and host of Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Just a couple things you do,
1: but uh welcome back, Corey. Well, thanks for having me. But I would say I'd correct you and say co-host because without you guys, none of it's possible on the commercial side. Oh. Well, you you need the guy they say in in uh, commentary,
0: you need like the expert and then the guy who kind of fumbles along. So right. I, we appreciate fumbling along. <laughs> Next We're the Ron expert. McLean uh, tier Don sure. Cherry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I don't want to slander you in any way if that's yeah. offensive. But your color is a little high. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, Corey, thanks for taking the time today. Can you start by telling our listeners a, a, a little bit about yourself? But I, before we get to that, actually. I, I think there's a couple of things. One, past guest
2: fan favorite. It's been a while since you've been on our show. Yeah. And it's good to have you back. Two, top 40 under 40.
0: Yeah. Top 40 under 40. That was just, that was, was that 2023 or
1: 2022? It would have been twenty twenty two. I think they they gave it out in uh, in twenty twenty three. Twenty twenty three. Yeah, they gave it out, but twenty twenty two. Okay, was, so uh, top
2: forty under forty. And what's the new? The newest. Uh, the
0: newest is. Uh, and and you didn't want to talk about this, but we have to talk about this. You are an Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year finalist for the Pacific region. Is that? Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah. So yeah. what? What is, I mean, I've, I've watched, I've seen this over the years, but. What is Ernst & Young? But yeah. What, what is, aren't
1: <laughs> they? they? They do so many things. I I think it'd be easier to say, what don't they do? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, um, they, they, but they, what does this mean? So. The, I'm still
1: trying to figure this out. I'm trying to figure out how I got on the list. <laughs> so,
0: so hang on. So right now there's, there's a hundred finalists in Canada and your And 20 in the Pacific region. From right? what I understand. Yeah. So you've yeah. already went to one event.
1: Well, yeah, I don't. I don't even know how I got in the door, to be honest with you. And then when you meet all the people that are out there that have been nominated for this award <laughs> right. and the companies that they have, I I I don't know how I got, got in the room. To be honest, I'm thinking like like these like there was the I met, I met the the people from Saks Underwear, yeah, which right. you see everywhere.
0: Did right? you quickly show them your your Saks?
1: Yeah, yeah. I would put I went in the bathroom and changed my hanes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they had like they, they, these are the people that are in this room. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, man, I'm like, we just kind of like buy and sell commercial real estate here. Really? Like, we're not changing the world by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing group of people that I got to meet. And again, I still don't know how they let me in, but it's, uh, but so far it's been a little bit of a wild ride early on in the process. And, I understand. And so, next step is somebody wins the Pacific region. I think so. I think, yeah. So, so someone, I think last year, from my understanding, the brand NYX, which is the women's underwear, and the bra brand, which is apparently the the Lululemon of underwear, apparently.
0: Oh, uh, wow! Yeah, I thought but, Lululemon was the Lululemon. Yeah, of yeah. This, this
1: is this is apparently <laughs> even bigger. Like, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know much about them. My wife was like, just knew everything about it. But yeah, so she apparently won, and then went on to win Canada, and then I don't, I don't know where you go from there. But long story short, if if you're really good at what you do, you end up in like Monaco. Wow. For some big event. So. Yeah, I was just happy I got the buffet in Vancouver. I was happy with that. (laughs) I thought I won when they had the buffet in Vancouver.
0: I was going to say, like, you know, there's that saying about being the product, the average of your five closest friends. You and Matt and I hang out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> what? First of all, what what's happened to Matt and I? And, and how are you actually escaping us uh, pulling you down here? That's, uh, well, that's not, not even
1: yeah. not even. I piggyback you guys all the time on this podcast, right? So you guys pull me up for this stuff.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's impressive. But really, what we we wanted to bring you on for was a uh, check in on uh, commercial real estate, but also like I think really just in all encompassing conversation about commercial real estate, the differences between residential and commercial, and of course, your investment thesis, your overall investment thesis. And and I think this is a great episode for people already in the commercial market, but it's a really fantastic episode for people that are trying to learn more about commercial real estate.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I The one, and I can't remember who we were talking to, Corey, uh, it was maybe four or five months ago, where halfway through the conversation, you started talking about why you like secondary markets. And immediately after I said to Adam, man, you got to listen to that. Buried in that commercial real estate podcast, there was some really, really uh, smart investment thinking uh, going on. So yeah, I was thinking it would be great to, to have you on to talk about that. But maybe as a start, you invest in commercial real estate. Yeah. I know you've invested in residential in the past and have had uh, a lackluster experience. Yeah. Why Why commercial real estate as an
1: investment for you? Well, I think the biggest thing, and I, I, and I and maybe I'll start by saying I probably had a really bad experience in the condo market. So it wasn't like it was, uh, we had the traditional story of the renter that didn't pay. And then, you know, she wouldn't leave. And then you go to the RTA, you get a judgment. And then the judgment's not really worth the piece of paper that is put on. Now you got to go sue them after, still won't leave, still won't pay rent. Eventually <laughs> left, but left all our stuff there. So then we had to throw it all out. And you know, thank God the market had gone up enough that by the time we sold the property, we had got all of our cost out of it and then some. But in commercial, you have what they call triple net leases in most cases versus in residential, you have gross rent leases and are governed by the Residential Tenancy Act versus in commercial. Every landlord gets to pick their own lease. There's not a, a standard form across the board. It's your lease and the tenant is governed by by your rules versus in residential, you're governed by, you know, you know, David Eby, Eby's rules and how those work. So mainly that that's kind of one of the biggest differential points. On top of that, you also have various asset classes that you can invest in from industrial to retail, multifamily, which is governed by the RTA, offices. So you've got a lot of diversity with regards to it versus in condos, you're kind of typically you buy the condo and the condo is worth what your neighbor paid a lot more avenues to kind of kind of do it so that we've always traditionally done that. And like we talked about earlier, like mentioned earlier, secondary markets, Vancouver Island, BC Interior markets, I think are just, they're thriving opportunities for investors that there's still many untapped markets still that haven't sort of taken off just yet that there's still great investment opportunities in. I, I'm just wondering, and this is, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I know Adam
2: met you What you were- 2011. You were you were an yeah. open fresh, house- Fresh-faced for, uh, for late 20s. Yeah. Yeah. And and Corey, you were doing an open house. I was doing an open, o-
1: open, yeah, this is like, I think it was Mike Spana. Stewart's listing of all things that yeah. I, that you were hosting the open house. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't I know. Was about I was
0: about a year into the business. Yeah. Probably I must is.
1: have lied to you and said I had a buyer because I sure didn't have a buyer at that time for, you were, you're probably touring me. Oh, thinking you I, were bringing somebody through. I, okay, I can't remember. Oh, were no, doing, no. no open, I, I, but
0: we met, at, we met in Crosstown.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you had. I think you. Had, I think you took me through like a open house or something like that. Yeah. I probably lied and said I had a buyer, which I definitely did not have a buyer.
0: <laughs> I probably lied and said I had a listing. Yeah, yeah a it listing. Was Mike's listing. <laughs> 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 and 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 now and now what? Twelve years 12, later. Twelve
1: years later, we're on. We're talking to ourselves in microphones. Yeah. So,
0: so yeah. And the reason I bring this up is, Corey,
1: Corey you presumably at that point you were considering residential. Uh, I got forced into it because where I worked, I, I wanted I, – I had this thought in my head of how commercial real estate could be done just because from prior to that, I was in a different industry where I dealt with commercial realtors all the time. Nothing wrong with them, but I'm like, hmm, now I could do this a little bit better. But where I worked, they kind of like – I had to go do like open houses as part of my training. So I was kind of just appeasing oh, the whole thing.
2: okay. I because see. I
1: didn't want to work at a, a commercial brokerage because I wanted to test my theory – Versus if I worked at a commercial brokerage, I didn't know people were calling me because with the business, the, the name on the business card, like the company on the business card. But, but if I worked at a residential place and they were calling me, it was clearly because of what I was doing because there was no support. So yeah, so I got stuck doing open houses. So I got to do like four, four a weekend and I'd be lugging like metal signs on the Sky Train. I was there with you. Oh yeah. It's I great. was, yeah,
0: four, for, for a weekend. Sometimes during the week I would just camp out if there was a vacant, if somebody had a vacant yeah. unit. Yeah. Especially if it was downtown and close to the seawall. I'd put my signs out right by the seawall and I'd sit there for like six, seven hours with my laptop yeah. all day long, five days a week.
1: <laughs> my favorite was when you get the call for like Tuesday night showings at 8 p.m. Those are my favorite. Like, hey, can you show your place next Tuesday at 8 p.m.? I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to. Let me, let me go get up and put some clothes on.
0: Well, hey, because cause in in addition to that, there in addition to you going full full-time into commercial real estate, you then, another departure is you went from working at the, the big names in the commercial, some of the bigger names in the commercial real estate world that a lot of people will be familiar.
1: You decide to start your own brokerage. Yeah, we had, a, we had a, an office with, uh, with no windows. Right. We, we went into a building that I did work for the landlord because he's the only guy I know that wouldn't check my credit score at the time. So I'm like, hey, this guy will let us in. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> well, why start your own brokerage? Uh, well, I, I'll be honest with you, is we're 10 years into this now. And not that any other company does it bad. I just thought there was areas that we could improve on. And I think one of those areas in the real estate industry is customer service. I mean, the commercial real estate world is probably greatly service for how much product there is and how little um, you know, brokers there are overall. Like you get guys that do residential and commercial, but I mean dedicated commercial people versus the product that's available. That I just thought we would just take a different approach to that and not say work harder, but I think take a different approach to it a little bit unorthodox in the early days. We went really big into the digital side of the business and have grown and expanded to now almost, I think we're almost 55 people across the province now in seven offices and growing. And just a little bit of different approach. Like traditionally you see like an office in a hub city like Vancouver, where there's maybe like a hundred commercial brokers. And I always looked at it from a standpoint where, well, if they're all in Vancouver, what happens if I want to buy something in Kelowna? Mm-hmm. Am I am I using a Vancouver guy? Who's trying to educate himself on the market up there. So our thought pattern was, you know, there were seven BC office, seven sort of areas in BC that we kind of keyed in on three in the lower mainland, the Tri-Cities, which are newest office services, but we'll be moving to the Tri-Cities next year, the Fraser Valley area and the Vancouver. So I thought if we kind of have more offices in more markets, we've got boots on the ground out there. We're embedded in the threat of those markets where we, we know what's going on. The local knowledge is there that we'd be able to offer and have a different offering for clients then maybe what you'd see. So on top of that, you know, Kelowna came and then Kamloops came, Central Island came, and then Victoria came. And you don't realize until you're kind of in these markets, how important that local knowledge is because you find out, like if you go pull all the titles in Kamloops in the commercial world, you're probably going to find 90% of those titles belong to someone that lives in Kamloops. They buy what they know. And you I mean, you go to the ballpark and then you find out like, you know, your kid plays on the team with this, kids you know dad and his dad owns the office building downtown Kamloops and it's it's like that those relationships are impeccable and especially also when you're talking about like the leasing side of the business knowing what tenants are coming and going knowing all that stuff specifically is just so important so we set out kind of like we're gonna have more offices and more markets smaller team like offices versus large kind of eat what you kill type of lone wolf offices that you see in the real estate world and it's worked really well and I'm not gonna lie when COVID hit it put a, a new onus on the secondary markets. We were going there anyways, but right. that definitely expediated it. And I remember sitting in my basement thinking like I, I'm going to die. I think we did a podcast Oh I think yeah, I had like a white T-shirt on type of thing, and I yeah. was—I probably had like—I probably had like, us, the, probably all, had like boxers uh, and white
0: T-shirts on. Took us all 20 minutes to set up the camera angles. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I
1: remember I kept looking at myself trying to get the perfect jawline, and I had the camera low enough that it looked like I lost weight, but you probably couldn't tell. I probably <laughs> had like a turkey chin. Um, but when COVID hit, I thought, okay, well, this is it, right? Like one of two things is going to happen: either, I mean, we're all going to die, and this is it, or we're going to pour gas on the fire and we're going to grow this company when other companies are sheltering. And looking back on it now, at the time, it might have been a little a very aggressive approach, but it worked out tremendously better than we could even anticipate. And I remember I was listening to the time a podcast by a guy named Gary Keller, who's one of the founders of Keller Williams. And he talks about how like that company was founded like in the, in, like, the 80s when the market just sucked. And his philosophy was, well, if we're not shrinking and at least we're maintaining what we had and everyone else is shrinking, we're growing. Right, mm-hmm. And he talks about how like hey, we're gonna push so hard right now that when this all ends and it'll end at some point, we're gonna shoot out like a rocket on the other side, and in our industry, a lot of companies were very large in size, and they maybe couldn't afford to maintain that size or the staff during that time because there's a lot of unknowns versus how we operate. We operate a lot leaner as a company standpoint that we could we could breeze through it from a cost standpoint. I think what we learned in Covid. Is just because you have lots of offices or restaurants or whatever it is, doesn't mean you're rich. It means you've got a lot of expenses. Mm-hmm. And not every office will produce what you want it to produce. So, you know, you got some that don't produce as much that are the better ones help support. So when COVID hit, we found out really quickly that some of these big companies that were shuttering locations and all that stuff, restaurants and all of that stuff was happening, that I'm like, okay, we're going to be able to get through this because our overhead structure isn't nearly the same as a lot of people in our industry but we're going to pour gas on the fire. And we opened two offices in the middle of COVID, which at that point, we no one really knew what was going on. So uh, that definitely was a, a huge point for us because we pushed so hard. I remember having company phone calls with 30 people on the call and everyone's calling from their house twice a week just to talk and make sure everyone's doing okay and and keep everyone motivated. But a lot of, a lot of companies in our industry couldn't maybe operate at the same pace that we were just purely based on overhead and the size that they were. That I think a lot of them kind of, I don't want to say hung it up, but they maybe weren't pursuing business as much as we were, that we were pushing so hard and trying to pursue so much that once everything kind of the real estate market kind of was taken off, a lot of people were scrambling to try to re-engage and get caught up and get reset versus we were kind of like, go, go, go the whole time. So we kind of shot out the other side like a rocket. That just worked out tremendously.
0: And so part of that strategy then of having the smaller offices kind of regionally placed throughout BC was to stay nimble and to basically uh, lean, lean and nimble.
1: Yeah, 100%. But I think also at the same point in time to have a different offering than most of the other companies. Now you're seeing other companies that are coming into some of these secondary markets that maybe they weren't there before because now they've realized it. We've always thought big fish, small pond. Versus we look at Camloops, which is 100,000 people. And you, you you had one commercial company that had an office there. They've since closed it, although they still have representation there. They closed their office. And maybe the mindset was the market's not big for them. I look at it as, well, if we're the only player in town, I mm-hmm. mean, lease rates in Camloops for industrial are 16 bucks. Lease rates in Aldergrove are 16 18 bucks. So from a brokerage business model, it works. But we'll be a big fish in a small pond. And we'll just do all the business.
2: Well, and it goes back to what you said at the start, that in the industry, it's underserviced in a lot of ways. Yeah. And especially in secondary markets where it's people are parachuting in from totally. elsewhere. Yeah. Or it's a residential guy who dabbles in commercial occasionally. Yeah. And it seems like you can eat eat uh, eat that guy's lunch pretty well, easily. Well, I think what
1: you find, too, is we come in, and we, I don't want to say we'll raise the level of customer expectations or client expectations, but we do business differently than maybe you might find, like, the local you know, Kamloops broker who does residential and commercial. And eventually with time, clients kind of, you know, gain that expectations that now you're forcing that market to try to like uphold itself to try to keep up with you. As these titles change hands, where more institutional owners and lower mainland investors and large privates and syndicates buy into these markets. I mean, they want to have business maybe done similar to how they have it over here. And if they can't find that there, it's not just to create a level of uncertainty versus what we're finding is the same clients that own a shopping center, say in Kamloops, they own in Kelowna, they own on the island. So we're creating that one-stop shop for them, where they can engage one company that has various offices in various marketplaces to execute on maybe their their investment strategy. So, so one thing, this is kind of a strange segue potentially, but it's interesting to think of the
2: way William Wright pushed through COVID. And the way that you seem to personally be pushing through a slower or potentially slower time in terms of your acquisitions, Adam and I are constantly talking about how, you know, you're engaged in transactions across the
0: province at a pretty striking pace. It and, feels like every, you're doing, and this is what I think a lot of people don't understand is the people that are the the real operators in, in real estate, the Kind of the true investors, there's there's almost a we a weekly deal, yeah. That they're that they're considering, right? And I mean that that is your pace of investing and putting deals together is is really astonishing, second to none. So that was a segue to say, how is the market? Because clearly
2: you're at least long term bullish and very active right now. When yeah. a lot of
1: people are sitting on their hands,
2: what's what's your take,
1: Corey, on the market right now? Well, I think if you look at just the pure. Like middle to long term real estate in this province, no matter what asset class you're in—residential, commercial, whatever it is—supply and demand will always win out long before we where our time is done on this planet. And by that, I mean record-setting immigration numbers, construction costs are rising, land is becoming harder and harder. We have political challenges that we have to deal with. We've got you know geographical challenges. The beauty of where it is, like, could you imagine, like, if you were like, you know, you guys will be able to relate this if COVID hit and you're locked down in Manitoba. Versus like you're locked down in, in Vancouver and in BC is like, oh, darn, I'm locked down in BC. Okay, I guess we go to Tofino this weekend and I'll go skiing in Whistler next weekend. And God, I'll, God forbid, I'll do a wine tour in Cologne on a boat. Like, it's, <laughs> like, is there a better place to get stuck, right? So that's where I think when you look at it, there's so many different avenues in every major market in BC, whether it's the lower mainland, Kelowna, Kamloops, Vancouver Island, it's an island. There's geographical and political challenges in every market that we have. Yet everyone wants to come into those markets and live and work that medium to long-term real estate will be your best investment by far, I think, in a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of things. In the short term, the metrics haven't changed. The only thing that's changed is the interest rate. So if I went to somebody and said, hey, you can buy this building today for two and a half million, and if you reposition the building, it'll be worth three and a half million in two years. People would say, yeah, let's do it. Now, if I came to you and said, hey... If you can buy this building for 2550000 now, and it'll be worth $3.5 million in two years, would you do it? Of course you would. That extra 50000 bucks you just paid is your interest that you're paying over what you thought you should pay. But the future value hasn't changed. I think you just have to be a little bit more understanding of what you're buying, and you got to be smarter in what you're buying. If you're buying a Yale Town retail strata lot at $90 a foot, at a 3% cap rate, you're really exposed because when that tenant goes from $90 on the renewal to $95 a foot, the needle hasn't really moved. And I think you've got to be able to get equity into your property quickly, refinance your capital out of it, and then de-risk your investment and then go on to the next one versus the example in Yaletown. It's what in the industry we would call a coupon clipper where it's just like you're parking your money and the income is barely moving. You're really subject to get hurt when interest rates move versus if I buy something for two and a half million, I reposition the whole thing. It's worth three and a half million. I can refinance most of my capital out of it. The new rent will carry the new debt. Even as these high interest markets come, if I can raise my rents in the next year, yeah, I got to probably float it for a little bit in the short term, but my rents will outpace the interest rates that I can just sit there and hold on and keep cash flow coming in and then reposition or refinance the building in two years or three years when interest rates hopefully come down. Because my, the, the end of the day is a lot of these areas like the rental income is not going to go down. Like we talked about this before we hit record. It's like Nanaimo, which is a, a thriving market. There's probably, I mean, six office buildings in downtown Nanaimo where you'd probably really want to end up. Land is becoming more expensive. Everything is selling for strata. The population will go from 105,000 to 120,000 over the next 10 years. Well, how many office buildings are downtown still? Six because the numbers don't pencil to buy the land today and build another office building, you're building strata condos. Well, as strata condos come in, that's people. Those people got to work somewhere. And if my population's gone up by 15 or 20%, but the offices are still six, the office rents going up are pretty pretty consistent. The lack of supply is still there because more people have showed up, but there's no more inventory for them to rent, even with the work from home model and stuff like that. If populations are growing by 15 or 20%, but there's no more inventory available in that particular asset class, with time it will fill. And it'll probably fill at a higher rate than what it was today. So I think you just to be very selective in what you're doing. I think you gotta really know the markets. And I think you gotta be really understanding that the market you're in, that you gotta be able to make sure these numbers work with these high interest rates. And the reality is we had a 25 basis point increase last week, probably another 25 basis inc- increase next month. If your deal doesn't work because it went up 25 basis points, it's your deal right didn't deal. work before it. So, <laughs> so, so you still be careful. You should be smarter in what you're doing and, and, and just just be very cautious. If you're cautious right now, is probably one of the best times to buy. What
0: do you do when you're looking at deals and when you're analyzing deals? Like what, what makes a great deal? What What's kind of the perfect deal for you when you look at something? So
1: a perfect deal, I think, for someone looking to buy something is, is you're going to buy in a market that you still have legacy leases in place, that tenants haven't come off those markets yet. And we look at Yeltown as an example, early 2000s, retail tenants were probably paying 30 and 40 bucks. And you fast forward six, seven, eight years later, they're probably paying like 80 bucks or 90 bucks. That massive increase will happen once in our lifetime. With that tenant that goes from 40 to 80, after his five-year term, he might go 80 to like 85, but it's not massively turning
0: I just want to just unpack that for people that don't. So the legacy lease is like a lease that's nearing the end of its uh, yeah. uh, five-year term, for example. Yeah,
1: five or 10-year term. And the market's changed dramatically. you know Here's, here's a great example. There was a listing, and I can't remember. I, I could be off here. I think it was like 5,500 square feet. No, sorry. I think it was, it was 8,800 square feet of industrial space that they were asking like 5.5 million for. The lease rates are probably 18 bucks. I could go to Kelowna and buy 12,000 square feet of industrial. So we're talking about 25% more, give or take, for like two and a half million, more than half the price. And my lease rates are 18 bucks. And I got probably a bigger population growth happening in that market on a, on a percentage basis than maybe I do down here. So I think when, you, when you, you can find stuff in the markets that have legacy leases where the industrial lease rate was eight bucks, but now it's 16. That's a once-in-a-generational time that that lease rate will turn to 16, whether you own it or the previous person owns it. Because in these secondary markets, the vacancy rate in most asset classes isn't very far off what you find in the lower mainland. And in some cases, like Vancouver Island, the industrial vacancy rate is probably lower over there than it is over here. And that's an island. Like there's, no, like there's literally no more land over there once it's gone. So I think if you can find stuff that has a legacy leases in place, that you have above-average population growth – in a market like Kelowna, which is way above average and you have low vacancy in that asset class, it ticks so many boxes that you can buy it with confidence in high interest rate markets because you're going to be able to grow the rental income by 50, 60, 100% that you will easily outpace the high interest rates in that particular scenario. And if you have to hold it for two years with high interest, you're cash flow positive, which doesn't really happen anymore. When I go refinance it, Even if I keep the same cash flow in there and I just refinance the same debt but at a lower interest rate or a better loan to value, my cash flow is just going to increase if I want that or I can go re-leverage it, bring in new debt, probably at 65 or 75% loan to value and get a large chunk, if not sometimes all of my original capital out of it and onto the next project and now the the higher rent will carry the higher debt comfortably within the bank's debt servicing ratios. Mm -hmm. So just to just to spell it out one the the legacy rents is crucial what 100%. else what else are you looking for asset classes that have minimal vacancy if i if i buy something that the tenants paying 10 bucks and the market's 18 but there's 20% vacancy that tenant might move out and then that place might sit vacant for a year and now i'm constantly feeding it now this is
0: what often keeps you out of other provinces.
1: 100%. Yeah. If you, if you go to like Edmonton, for example, you might find some really attractive cap rates, but the vacancy rate in those asset classes is, is huge. So if I take my vacancy allowance of like 20% for argument's sake, and I flush it through that, that, that eight cap rate, I might be sitting with a 4% cap rate cash on cat or, or 4% cap, cap rate at the end of the day based on my current income with no equity growth. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't I just stay in BC? and get something for a 3%, for argument's sake, in a multifamily asset class in Greater Vancouver that might have a chance of appreciating 5 or 7%. But the trick is, I, g- I got no vacancy. Tenants will come in and backfill it really, really quick. And that's the challenge. Like in BC, we live in a bubble, a real estate bubble, and everything tends to work in our favor, it feels like. But right now, with high interest rates, the trick is you don't want to be paying into it too bad every month without having the ability to get additional equity out of it. So legacy rents, low vacancies. Low vacancy Above average population growth. Above average. In those okay. things. And I think the secondary markets have the greatest opportunity for that because as COVID taught us, there's new emphasis on livability. And when you look at someone like Nanaimo, where they have the new fast ferry coming in, which if that does succeed, you're potentially going to be getting from Nanaimo to downtown Vancouver in, I think, 60 minutes, maybe 70 minutes. I can't even get in from Coquitlam to Vancouver in that time period. <laughs> Yet, I could go to Nanaimo yeah. and live in a market that has everything that most people would want in a great city with livability and it's got all the amenities now you'd you'd want to need
0: more affordable
1: yeah for half the price if not more than what you'd buy something in Coquitlam and I got to drive and deal with people honking at me versus on the fast ferry you could put your feet up you know you could listen to a podcast you know you could read a book you know watch a movie completely different thing and it's the same time to and from almost kind of like Squamish for some reason like on the residential side where it's like hey I'm driving an hour and 15 from Coquitlam do I want to drive from Squamish to Vancouver in that hour and 15 or do I want to drive Coquitlam to Vancouver in that hour and 15? And then obviously mm-hmm. Squamish just matured and everyone ended up there and prices went through the roof. So part
2: of this thesis, as I understand it, is using Vancouver as the example of what is to come for these secondary markets, right? Like you, you reference Yaletown often as that's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence yeah. and it hasn't happened yeah. in other markets around the province, but there's a certainty... In your mind with immigration, demographic
1: shifts, yeah. the the kind of post-COVID world that it's bound to happen. Well, if you look at even the lease rates in these markets in these areas, right? Like like, you know, you can almost grab any secondary market, whether it be Victoria or Cam, you know, even Camloops, right? Like housing prices there went boom and population growth was really, really good. You go to any of these markets, all the metrics are the exact same. The trick is you gotta find an asset class in that marketplace that has legacy leases in place and you're buying it on a cap rate on current income, not future income. A, a bank won't finance future income anymore. But if I'm buying something that has a cap rate of five on potential income, but the current income's three, I'm taking all the risk. Because if tenants leave, that costs me money. They stay, I got to renew them. So I'm fighting just to get a market cap rate out of the deal. I'm absorbing all the risk. I'm paying for my risk at that point. Mm-hmm. But if I buy it on a five cap rate, if that's what the market is, on the current income and I can then double the rent I should be rewarded because I'm taking the risk now. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of finding all those things that match up. And when you find them, go for it. And right now, is the greatest opportunity because a lot of things aren't selling because people can't see past the forest and through the trees. They're like 12% interest rate. It's a bad buy. But it's not a bad buy. The tenants are paying 10 bucks and everyone else in around is paying 20.
2: So finding deals because somebody out there is listening going, oh man, this, is, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Is part of the way you're finding deals because now you have William Wright boots on the ground in these markets or is there a network you've built up because a lot of, obviously these deals aren't, you're not shopping on
1: MLS for this. Well, thing. and to be, when you go in the secondary markets, a lot of the stuff that, that we have found that clients have purchased or, you know, collectively syndicates have purchased and stuff like that, like they're all listed. A lot of the stuff isn't coming out of the woodwork. It's it's a matter of I think a lot of people like I said can't see past the forest and oh, the trees. Oh, interesting. So
2: so this is like yeah, a, a yeah obvious, these, these obvious these are obvious right out right there. there.
1: The the problem is a lot of people see a twelve percent interest rate or a ten percent interest rate in commercial because you're probably a hundred and fifty basis points maybe more over and above what the bank's prime rate is, which right now is you know commercial say prime plus three and a half. You're probably ten point six. That people see that and they just they they don't want to do it. But if I look at a building. And the market cap rate in that market traditionally is four and a half. Maybe it's come up to five a little bit, but demand will kick back in at some point. But the rents are half of what they can be. And there's no vacancy in that asset class. That's a deal. Mm -hmm. The other thing you can look for now that is more uh, accessible that wasn't accessible before is what they call vendor take-back mortgages. Right. So five years ago, I want to sell my property. And if you want me to be your bank, which I don't want to be, give me 15%. I'll be your bank for 15%. That's a big That's a big F you. Yeah. Now, people that have certain types of properties that don't have long-term leases in place or have challenges, they might have to be the vendor in the sales side of it, on the vendor take-back mortgage side of it, because banks won't touch it. So therefore, opportunities for buyers. That so you come in and you might find a 75% loan to value, maybe instead of like a 65% or a 55% loan to value from a lender, and you might find a 5.5% interest rate versus like a 9.5% interest rate. Because vendors or sellers now might have to take that role if they want to sell the asset versus before. It's like, I want to sell it. Banks are lending. I don't have to be that person. Well, maybe now you have to be. because And 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 typically the people that are in those positions, A, have little to no mortgage on their property. They've owned it forever. It's appreciated dramatically. And they're earning an interest rate. Right? Even if I sell something for two million bucks and I'm getting and I carry a million on it or a million and a half on, it, I'm getting five percent for two years. That's just additional money over and above what I would have sold it outright for. And there's probably some cap gains benefits there on a per annum basis because you're not getting all the money at once and you might have write downs you can apply. So there's a whole bunch of things that work in. But vendor takeback mortgages are much more accessible now with sellers in certain asset classes in certain areas than they would have been five years ago or even three years ago because there was there wasn't the need for it. So I just want to use an example because
2: you've talked a lot about repositioning and I'm just thinking about a specific office retail building in, in the Nymo. Let's just say you buy that, what, a year ago? Sure. There's a reposition. Can you walk us through the steps? Like for somebody out there that's going, what exactly does that look like? Legacy leases in place. This is a good buy. Yeah. What exactly are those steps to reposition? And
1: and see either an exit strategy or a refinance and move on? Well, step number one would be, you know, what are the current lease rates in the building? And I guess, you know, that'd be 1A, one 1B one would be, what are market lease rates in the area? Mm-hmm. So if I'm looking at a building in this example, in the Nanaimo, and, and it's say quasi-industrial retail and everyone's paying like 12 bucks a foot, but the market's like 18 bucks a foot around there, then I know, okay, hey, there's an opportunity here where the rents are below market lease right. rates. When I'm looking at what market rates are, I have to look at uh, what do those buildings offer to get those rates? So if my building is dilepid and the one next door, it's 18 bucks foot, it's brand new and shiny. Well, I can't maybe use the $18 a foot the neighbors getting because I don't have the same offering sure. as they do. But if I can buy the building and maybe I put a little bit of curb appeal into it, I paint it, you know, bring it back to life, and that gets me those numbers because that's what the area is generating. That would be something I have to consider. You also might find two signs that, that the building you're looking at is fairly decent. It's just the tenants haven't renewed the rent for a while. Maybe it's a local mom and pop owner who know the tenant. They don't want to raise the rent. So there's a lot of stuff like that that can come into play. So one, what are the current rents in the building? Two, what are market rents in the area? And what do I have to do to the building to get those market rents? And then number three is is when do those leases expire? Mm-hmm. I mean, if they're like there for another nine years, it's not doesn't make a lot of sense. If they're coming due in the next 12 or 16 or 18 months, and I know going into it that I can get that additional lift in the rents, in that short period of time, that's really that 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 ticks a lot more boxes because now I can actually move that debt out of that building somewhere else because those rents are going to come up relatively quickly. So that aspect of it's really really important, and that's where we talked about earlier at the start of the show is like William, my commercial having more mark more offices and more markets. That local knowledge of having a broker in the marketplace that you want to buy is impeccable because I can go do research online and draw conclusions, sure. but it doesn't mean I have the same thing. What's happening there? So, all those things are really, really important. And then, when you're also looking at buying it, you got to make sure you're buying it on current income, not future income. Because that was a big thing. Like when, you know, in the middle of COVID, everyone's selling stuff on future value, not current value. Mm Got to make sure you're buying current value. Sorry, just to be
2: clear on this. So, for instance, this office retail space in, in Nanaimo. Yeah. I'm wondering about how you're raising those rents. So the leases are coming due. Is there a rolling period in which all the leases are coming due and you're going to each, each person and saying, Hey, I painted It looks like more like down the street now. You actually got a good offering
1: and you got a killer price. We got to bump that. Yeah. Well, the thing too is like the other thing that to go back to what are some of the key things, you want to make sure the vacancy rate of the asset class you're buying is very low in the market that you're Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And because if if I'm a tenant and I'm paying 12 bucks a foot and everyone else around me is paying 18 bucks a foot and there's nowhere I can really go, that then shifts to the landlord perspective that if I don't pay the 18 bucks because the vacancy rate is so low, someone behind me will. I still want to operate, so I I have to sort of stay here and sign. Right. right. So a lot of that stuff comes to favor for the landlord versus if there's lots more options for me to go elsewhere and there's a lot of landlord incentives for me to move to someone else's building, well, I'll just pack up and walk out and that landlord now has to deal with vacancy. So if you get into the right asset classes in the right markets that have low vacancy rates, nine times out of 10, those tenants, if they're going to continue their business you know, end up staying and signing. Cause there's a cost to move too. You know, you gotta you gotta pack up and move. And I, you know, maybe I've been yeah. in a location for a while, everyone knows I'm here. I get all my marketing material changed now. Gotta change my mail. You know, there's a whole bunch of those those pain in the ass things that all cost money and time that, you I mean, from a tenant perspective, nine out of ten times, as long as the, you know, as long as you're not asking for like thirty bucks and everyone's eighteen bucks, nine times out of ten those tenants will stay. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about, so first of all, how do you comp lease rates in, in these markets? Well, this is the challenge is there's no central database that you can go to get lease comps. Leases are private contracts between a landlord and tenant versus a sale of a property goes to a land title. Right. There's a registry there. You know, eventually everyone can access it. So again, having boots on the ground in these markets, that's where that data comes from is the commercial brokers you're working for. They should have access to internal data within the brokerage that they're with in the market they're operating that they can bring forward that information. Now, you could go online and look on like MLS to see what things people are asking for stuff, but asking rates and deals getting done are two different things. So that's why having a broker in the market you're buying in, boots on the ground, is so important because that lease information is not readily available. It's private contracts. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm thinking about uh, any rental property. That in residential where you've got your rent coming in, you're paying your mortgage, your strata fee, your property taxes, your insurance, everything, right? Levies, potential levies that come up in the building. What's a
1: triple net lease? So a triple net lease is where in commercial where you have what they call a base rent or basic rent, and then you have your triple net costs or additional rent costs. The basic rent is what we're negotiating fair market value on, 30 bucks a foot, 32 bucks a foot. That number is fixed. For the term of the lease, on whatever we agree to, 30 bucks to year one, 31 year two, 32 year three, those numbers don't change. The additional rent cost is the landlord's cost of operating the unit, operating the unit or the building. That's everything from you know HVAC repairs and maintenance to elevator repairs to strata fees to increases, insurances, property taxes. All of those costs that cost the landlord to operate that go up year over year over year, some years more than others. Those costs are passed on to the tenant. So when I'm looking at the investment side of things, I'm making my decision on the tenant's fixed term lease of $30 a foot, 31 32 If I can make my numbers work within that, and it's what they call a true triple net lease where all those other costs are passed on to the tenant, I'm not vulnerable to watching my income year over year potentially get less versus if I have a gross rent deal or just say if I'm renting out a condo. As my strata fees go up, that eats into my numbers as a landlord. As my insurance goes up, that eats into my numbers as a landlord. Special levies and judgments, those numbers eat into my pocket as a landlord. Versus commercial, those costs get passed on to the tenant and then the tenants will absorb those costs. Is this another argument to stay in in markets with low vacancy?
0: Because I'm just thinking like, can you go in a market with 20% vacancy and demand
1: a triple net lease? Tenants have more negotiating power. So, and usually how the process works is there'll be an offer to lease or an LOI put forward The tenant should have representation in this transaction. And one of the tenant's conditions is to review and be satisfied the landlord standard form lease. And we say standard form lease. There's no landlord standard. Standard form refers to what that landlord for that particular building wants to use. So they give you the lease and you as a tenant should review it and provide comments on what you agree to and what you don't agree to during your subject period. Well, if there's no vacancy and I've got 10 people waiting for your space, you don't really have a very powerful position to negotiate from. As a tenant, if I go to Edmonton and I can kind of dictate the rules because the vacancy is 10 or 12 or 30% in, say, an office asset class, that landlord is going to have to give me more incentives to come in, as well as I'm going to be able to negotiate better terms of my lease, all of that stuff, because there's there's one of me and there's 10 vacancies and every landlord's eyeing for my attention versus over here, there's 10 tenants and one vacancy and every tenant's eyeing for the landlord's attention. Mm-hmm. So you're not n- nearly as good of a space to negotiate but a triple net lease traditionally will cover all of the landlord's operating costs for their property whether it's it's Edmonton or Vancouver it's just a matter of is it, can you nitpick things out of it in a market with higher vacancy and the answer most likely would be yes
2: just thinking about you know the much uh, talked about especially in the office space but commercial real estate in the US seems to be getting crushed right now in, yeah. in a lot of markets you know, we hear a lot about office space in Calgary and other markets, the vacancy rates being super high. You know, you mentioned before the idea of BC being a bubble in in a lot of ways. I'm just wondering, are the vacancy rates going up, I guess, in Vancouver and in secondary markets? Are we seeing some of that, the, the negative impacts of I think a number of things hitting commercial
1: real estate all at once in other locations, is that coming to bear fruit here? Yeah, no question. Every market's vulnerable to it. Here's the difference I think with, you'll find with Vancouver is, I mean, downtown Vancouver, it's it's an island almost right? you got to get a bridge to get in surrounded by water. And downtown Vancouver is probably 70% condos and hotels versus 30% office space. Versus you go to like Seattle, it might be 30% condos and hotels to 70% office space. So obviously it's gonna have a different effect when you're downtown and there's not as many people in the offices. Vancouver's not a head office city traditionally. We had a vacancy rate of probably sub 3% in the office market, which was very unhealthy. Landlords could write it, you know, put up a number and tenants would have to pay it. Versus now we're probably in that, you know, eight to ten percent, which is more like a balanced market. The media will make a big deal, like, oh my God, it's it's eight percent. Like this is unreal. You go to New York, it's probably like 10 or 12 right so it, i mean there's a lot of geographical and political challenges that i think that will save the office market for lack of better words and if you look at like calgary they could just build for days mm-hmm. and calgary learned a lot because they were so heavily invested really in one industry and they still are that when that industry had challenges they were very vulnerable and you look at san francisco right now and they're probably experiencing the same thing because they were very like so into the tech industry that now, as the tech industry is pulling back, and there's a lot more work from home or hybrid models, they may not need as much space. I read an article that that Google was dropping 1.2 million square feet of office space in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley because they were either putting people in different markets, or there was work from home, or there's hybrid models. So I think things will change. Yes. Do I think that the population and all that stuff coming in will eventually sort of subside and correct this in a positive way for landlords?
2: And what about other, so, uh, I
1: you know, offices,
2: the headline. Yeah. Uh, are we seeing a tick up in, in, across the board in other asset
1: classes? Uh, well, I think thing, you think, do look at like retail? Like retail is obviously, you know, I mean, well-positioned retail will always be busy, mm-hmm. you know, you mean? Know, even, you know, COVID, a lot of people thought that everyone's gonna work from home and retail was gonna die and obviously it had its challenges, but like my dentist ain't coming to my house to fix my teeth. <laughs> right. So I have to still go to that dentist in that retail space to get it done. Like my barber's not coming over and I maybe some people have barbers that come over, but I have to go find my barber at like Coquitlam Center. Yeah. Get my hair cut there. Like like champ, you know, Foot Locker's not delivering shoes to me where I can try on forty pairs of shoes to pick it. I can order online. Right. Like one pair. yeah. So I think there's, you know, well-positioned retail will always do. Will always do well. But again, the faces of retail will change. Like you look at a dentist as an example. Ten years ago, you probably went up an office building to the eighth floor to your dentist. And now, you know, dentists are on every retail level because they need the exposure. So the faces will change. The tenants will change. But I think the overall marketplace will subside. There's just too much supply and demand. And the media will obviously make a, a bigger deal out of something negative, you guys probably see on the residential side, like stats would come out and they just take the one headline off of it. But if you actually read into it, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. So, but I think overall, the asset classes in the in the markets that you want to be in, office, industrial, retail, and in all the major BC markets, I think will get through this no problem and come out on the other side in a much better place. Demand hasn't gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like people aren't sitting there saying, like, I will never buy a commercial building in Kelowna ever again. They're not saying that. They're just saying, hey, interest are a little high. I'll wait for them to come down and then demand will come. Like Kelowna not getting any bigger. Right? There's no more land coming available. Mm-hmm. Victoria is the same way. You know, I mean, people are, you know, to subside and, you know, money will flood back in. It'll be totally fine. So
0: bird's eye view of BC, what's your favorite market right now? Nanaimo. Nanaimo. Nanaimo.
1: And uh, asset class? I like office, believe it or not, in Nanaimo, purely just based on, you I mean, industrial is great. Don't get me wrong, industrial is great everywhere. But in Nanaimo, with the prices of land for developers, like I said, there's six office buildings that are there today, and they'll probably be six office buildings in 10 years because land is just too expensive to kind of buy and build offices. And right now, with what we're going through, no one's like, hey,
2: I'm looking for office. Here's
1: what (laughs) I'm looking to build office space. Like that if you were trying to build brand new office space in Nanaimo, downtown right now, which you can't go underground because of the water table at today's prices for construction, it's a suicide mission. Like you're just asking to go bankrupt in that scenario. And when you're looking at buying these things, it's not uncommon that you buy something for four million that has a replacement cost value of six mm-hmm. or eight million bucks. It's just, it's, it's because people construction costs are so expensive. These older assets are now really, really sexy. Cause you're like, well, I wouldn't buy the land for four million and then build for eight when I can buy the existing building right now with income in place for five. So it's not uncommon. A lot of big companies, when they buy property, they buy it for what they call below replacement cost value. That's part of their strategy. And when you're buying something, you want to get proper stated insurance. You got to get replacement cost appraisals done. So we get clients that buy stuff for like four and a half million. The replacement cost appraisal is like ten. Now, unless you're going to burn it down, it doesn't really make any sense. The ten million dollars doesn't play into it. But you can make a draw conclusion that hey, no one else is going to build this. Yeah, because no one's going to spend ten million dollars on what I just bought for five. How are you like, cause
0: I, I, I remember this is a question based on a past conversation we had. So I think you, I know the answer, but you guys did a ton of business in Harris Green yeah. and part of it was because of the population growth to, yeah. and we often in think Victoria. about population growth versus yeah. inventory in terms of like cities and towns, yeah. but moving that into a more micro level, like looking at sub areas, Yeah, talk
1: a little bit about like, where the logic was to go into Harris Green? Well, if you look at Harris Green, so back up maybe like five or six years, right? Victoria was probably, it's a government city first and foremost. So like your major industries are are set. Government's pandemic proof. Like they're not going anywhere. So in, when the world shuts down, they're still you know occupying space. But when you occupying look space. It's when you, Yeah, well, maybe they're occupying space still. It doesn't mean they're working. <laughs> they're there. Um, <laughs> I'm, again, I'm, I'm going to get totally get audited or something warm after body. this. <laughs> um, but if you look at Yale it's a great example, right? That's an area that we saw firsthand living in the lower mainland over the last 20 years, what happened to it. And when you look in like Victoria, which again, we make a joke, it's an island, there's no more land. When they look at these new OCP areas, they go look at like like car dealerships, right? Like there's a car dealership, 3,000 square foot building, you know, on a 20,000 square foot acre piece of site. where we could put 300 homes there. So when they go and they look at these OCPs and they create these OCPs, they're like, where can we, first off, where can we find the land that we need? And the Harris Green District, which is kind of like Blanchard to Cook, Johnson Gates are kind of your, your four boundaries. I think, it's like a, I think it's like an eight block radius type of thing. But, you I mean, it was prime for the picking. And the city, the city put more density in that area. There was big land parcels that you could create the density that the city wanted to see. Victoria was growing dramatically. The industries in Victoria are all, like, it's not just government now. It's tourism. It's government. It's education. I read a stat that uh, UVic's enrollment was up like 40% right. in like five years. Well, what happens when all those people got to come in? Well, now you got to build more hospital space because now people are going to get sick. And then I got to, You know, I mean there's so many other industries that feed off of that stuff that is such a well-oiled marketplace that it's not indestructible, but it's balanced enough. So when you look at the Harris Green District and you look at all the potential buildings that were proposed, and you look at like the Starlight Building that just got approved, like fifteen hundred units are coming in their in their their two block radius. I think the Harris Green District is around like I could be wrong. I want to say it's like around 6,000 or 6,600 condos when it's all said and done. And when I look at it from a commercial standpoint, I'm like, okay, well, if there's, let's just say 6,600 condos and let's say make numbers real easy, like two people live in each condo, that's 13,000 people. And I take a 30,000 square foot site and I put 300 condos on it and then I'm like, okay, well, I got to have a lobby door and then I got to have like a parkade entrance. Well, that might leave me like 4,000 square feet for retail. So if I kind of take that model and I kind of, you know, use and I plot it out, I'm like, wait a minute. There'll be way more people here than than what we could offer from a retail offering. Well, if, if I buy all that retail and lease rates go up to forty and fifty bucks a foot, and the population is there to pay the retail tenants to service the rents, like that's a Yale town. So, and I remember like our our Victoria office sits in the Harris Green district, and I think we paid like four hundred and something bucks a foot for the space that now. As a shell, you'd probably get like 800 to 900 bucks a foot for the same space. Now, but this is only like four years later. But that population is going to come in. And again, people need to get coffee and they need to go for breakfast and they're going to get, you know, go get their teeth cleaned. So there won't be enough retail offerings to service that area. Well, what happens when that happens? Rents just go up. And when you look in Victoria, you cross over Blanchard on Yates or Johnson, you head into the downtown core, you're probably 50 to 80 bucks a foot. Well, if the population shifts, I know everyone's in Harris Green. Well, could I get the 50 or 80 bucks a foot if everyone wants to be there? You'd think so. And if there's not enough retail space, people, people will pay, not whatever they want, but people people will pay to be there, that that's an area that has just exploded. And uh, I know you guys have had Byron Chard on your podcast. We've had him on ours. And Chard's a big developer in that particular area. So we've been very fortunate to sort of see their progression and they've been very you know kind to share stuff with us but you I mean like like i think i think their project the nest i think they're like 950 or 1000 bucks a foot or something like that right. Mm-hmm. right for condos in victoria right so that just goes to show you who's coming in and it's not the old people that, that are are dying over there anymore you're getting young educated professionals coming in and the jobs are showing up like look at like like look at langford right costco and home depot and tesla and all the businesses that you want to be on the island are all there now mm-hmm. and that's an area that's just exploding where condos have probably gone from five, six hundred bucks a foot to maybe closer to a thousand bucks a foot, maybe more. Well, retail is going to see probably a bigger surge because there's just not the opportunity for the tenants. There won't be enough space to service all the demand that those tenants above are going to have. And I think uh, speaking of a buyer, and I think uh, they had just got a project. I could be completely wrong with this number. I think it's like three hundred and forty-five rental units. They're putting like on on like a corner, like just one corner, right? So that one corner there you'll have like maybe 700 people in that building and then you'll probably have like 700 people across the street and then kitty corner to them, you might have 500 people and then kitty corner to them, eventually you'll have another 500 people. Well, if my math is really quick, that's 2,400 people that all have to cross the street from each other. Well, if I have a retail space on the corner where there's a restaurant and there's 2,400 people that I can throw a golf ball and hit, someone, that restaurant tenant is going to pay a lot of money to be in that space. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the trick is with the Harris Green District is it becomes so dense that retailers will be able, retail landlords will be able to write their own check to some degree,
2: so Corey, maybe as a final question here, you know, through the grapevine, I've heard of a couple of maybe not distressed sellers but distressed owners in in the commercial world, and I think you've watched some people make some decisions you probably wouldn't. What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen people make over the last couple of years? And I'm thinking these as instructive for, for people looking to invest in commercial real estate.
1: Well, I think the biggest thing that people have to be wary of is you got to buy like location, location, location is key in commercial real estate. If you go into a secondary market and you're like a block off the main drag or two blocks off the main drag, it can be vital to the vacancy rate of that particular building. As an example, there was a building that we watched in Kamloops that was about a block too far from where it should be the and vac- the retail space sat vacant for almost two years. So if you're going to secondary markets, location is really key, but you also want to make sure you understand the vacancy rate in that particular market because again, people get sucked into cap rates and cap rates are great if you have tenants, but if you have high vacancy rates in those markets, they just they just flush right through. Mm-hmm. And when you're buying buildings, most leases restrict your ability to charge back capital improvement costs, such as a roof. So when you're getting the building inspected, you got to make sure that the building doesn't have a lot of deferred maintenance because even at a higher cap rate, All of those costs that you're spending out of pocket are gone. Those will affect your numbers. So, you know, location, location is key. Make sure you get proper building inspections. You don't have deferred maintenance and just understand your vacancy rate. There's been situations we've seen before where guys have bought like, you know, great assets that the vacancy rate in that particular asset class maybe isn't what they want it to be and it sits vacant for quite some time. And then they're constantly feeding the building money every month and then numbers change. So vacancy rates are really important. Location is really important. Make sure you get it properly inspected so you don't get hit with any deferred maintenance costs on capital improvement costs. And the and in the hot markets, a lot of that stuff presumably goes
2: by the wayside. 100% so it does. When we're hearing of distressed yeah. uh, owners right now feeding, feeding yeah. properties, it's, it's yeah. because you're caught up in the whirlwind or you have to. Yeah. It, not even necessarily that you're caught up, but you're just… Uh, it's not an emotional thing
1: as much yeah. as it is, you know, that's what you have to do to get the yeah. property. You're not invincible, time. right? Some people have success in a couple other transactions and then they think they're invincible, but it's, it's a market. You have to really know what you're doing. Fantastic.
0: Well, let's leave it there. But Corey, we have this segment called the five wire, slightly different than the six pack on the commercial show. But uh, anyways...
1: Do you have time to stick around? I will 100% stick around, but just so you know in advance, my answer to every question is Nickelback. (laughs) Yeah. Here we go. The six pack is powered by our good friends over at Red Point Law. Red Point Law, Corey, Tim, Falco, Scott, and
2: the team. These are great people with a wealth of experience when it comes to commercial closings and private lending. And I just want to say, Corey, not to cut you off, they have a perfect
1: five-star review on Google. So for all your commercial legal needs, visit them at redpointlaw.ca with offices in Vancouver and now open in downtown Kelowna. Question number one, what is one book that, you've rec- that you would recommend for our listeners? Uh, so when I just finished, what was really, really good was called Extreme Ownership. Oh, Jocko Willing. Yeah, yeah. So in, like, if you actually get the audiobook, book, he, he's got the voice to tell the story. Like it's really good. I yeah. just finished that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like it's like guy. It's like, guy sounds like Batman. Like like he's. Well, he's like
0: a legit. He's like uh, he's like the personification of like a GI Joe figurine, right? Like yeah. he's like if you actually look. at I him, know
2: the name, but I don't actually
1: know what's the what's the thrust of the book. Yeah, so he's an ex Navy SEAL, and right. so it's just like. Like, you, like when you go to battle, it's like everyone's coming home. Like, that's the end story. Yeah, it's yeah. not like, hey, we lost two guys. Good day, guys. It's like, no. So it, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just just about it, accountability is really what Extreme it comes down. Extreme accountability. Extreme accountability, right? Like, you're, you're cool responsible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, so, like, that's a great book. Um, if we can throw a couple of that, like, Good to Great by Jim Collins is, like, the Bible. So yeah. everyone has to read that at one point. If you want a really good autobiography, Robert Eichner, who's the CEO of Disney – that is an amazing uh, I, you know book.
2: What? I audio book that. That's actually a good listen it's, too. It's, it's
1: good. Yeah. yeah, it's well done. And then like Little Black Stretchy Pants, which is like the Lululemon, Lululemon story. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, I think, make the mistake of thinking he's just some dumb jock that created a stretchy sweatpant. No, the guy, the, the vertical retail model and all that stuff is just impeccable. So listen to the book. You get a whole new respect for the Lululemon company and sort of what he did to get it from nothing to what it is. Oh, fantastic. Those are great. All right. Number two, Matt. In the last few years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Uh, I would say improved but also hindered is my Peloton. Yeah. Just waking up in the morning. Uh <laughs> Gets me focused for the day, but as we all know and joke about it, I did have some injuries incurred because of it. I did take a spill on it, but I but would to say- to your the face, Pel- not to your- Yeah, yeah. well, my face and my rash. ego. And my ego. Like, how do you fall off a stationary bike? Like, But yeah, I'd say the Peloton would be, the, the waking up early and getting on the Peloton would be the best thing.
0: When you say early, we because we joke about that too. You're you're up when most people are going to
1: bed. In many cases, you're what about a three or four a.m. Yeah, three three thirty guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, if you work at William Wright Commercial, like there's emails flying around the company at four in the morning. I was
0: going to say, sometimes by the time we're meeting at nine o'clock, like you're eating your lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Right now it's lunchtime. I'm having dinner. I
1: going to. I go to bed in two hours, guys.
0: <laughs> we should say uh timestamp. It's it's noon. Uh, <laughs> number three,
1: what have you been binge watching lately or a favorite movie recommendation? Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, what am I binge watching lately? Uh, I am re-watching Selling Sunset. Oh, they know, yeah. do you know
0: they I think Selling Sunset the cast was just in Vancouver if I'm not mistaken a brokerage or somebody brought them in.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking it's maybe I don't know, I don't want to name names, but uh yeah, it's 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 it's, it's tacky. It sounds really bad, like I know, but I've watched Suits so many times that I'm on Netflix I'm trying to find some other ones to watch. So that there's like a new season out, so I'm like watching the season before so I know what happens in the new season which I haven't watched just yet. So I'd say Selling Sunset, but you can't judge me when I say that. All right. right. Judgment, Thoroughly judged. Uh, yeah, yeah. say, <laughs> yeah. No judgment here. Yeah. Nickelback. <laughs> uh, we, know, we know Nickelback uh, is your
2: favorite band, so maybe I'll put a different one to you. One, knowing all the... Having all the wisdom you have now, Corey, one piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Slow down.
1: Slow down. Yeah, I think at that time, I... It's like a lot of people. I think I put like a lot of pressure on myself. I thought I had to be a certain place, at a certain point in my life, and I was like, sort of, like trying to like hustle as hard as I could to get there. And I think instead of like just slowing down and absorbing everything and learning, it was kind of just like such a rapid ride, run, so fast in my early twenties that you make a lot of mistakes doing things that you look back now. That like you kind of like, what were you, what were you doing? So right. I think if I slowed down a little bit when I was younger, I probably would have learned a lot more. Um, but I'd say slow down would have been something I'd tell myself. That's that's good advice from a man who's in a hurry.
0: Yeah. Uh, Always in a
1: hurry. I was going to say, but for probably 80% of the population or more, it's probably speed up, right? Yeah. Well, that's one thing too, is I think I was like, like, I looked at it when I was like, like, again, you look at like a Mark Zuckerberg and you try to compare yourself to someone like that at 22 or 23 and you're like, oh crap, I'm so far behind. But I think, you know, instead of, instead of trying to like force yourself or feel like you have to be there at some point, like you'll, you'll get there. Yeah. Or maybe not in the case of Zuckerberg, but yeah, uh, yeah, maybe not. Like, I don't think anyone will get there where he is. But <laughs> like I said, you know, lofty goals, you'll get there. Yeah.
0: Last but not least, something that you've purchased for under $1,500 that has changed or had a positive
1: impact on your life in the last few years? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to say this putter that I bought, it's a tailor made putter. And I went from probably having like, like, like no, like missing every putt to now I probably get like one out of 18 in. So So I've dramatically improved my putting game from, Absolutely, dreadfully, horrible, to just horrible with the purchase of that putter.
2: But didn't you have a story? I think I was only partially uh, involved or listening. But we called you the other day, and you were on the golf course, and yep. you, you like, oh yeah, it's like you're halfway through the call talking numbers or whatever, and threw down the phone and hit your own yeah, good you, shot. Yeah, game.
1: you. So <laughs> at this point, I was in a charity golf tournament. At this point, I don't think I think I got the ball in the air at all yet. <laughs> And you guys called, and I'm like, oh, Adam's calling, but I called back the boss. So I quickly, like, pulled over. I'm walking on uh, – I have I have you guys on the phone, speakerphone. I'm talking to you, and I'm and everyone's waiting for me to hit. So I just put you down on the grass, hit the ball, and I probably – it was probably like 150 yards to, like, six feet. Picked up the phone, kept talking, got back in. And this one guy yelled, like, that's the most gangster thing I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. That was the only time the ball actually got in the air that whole round. So it was just – you guys brought me the luck. <laughs>
0: Well, we'll leave it there, Corey. But uh, how can people
1: find out more about you and William Wright Commercial Real Estate Services? They can reach out to me anytime. uh, Email, uh, corey at williamwright.ca or they can go visit our website, williamwright.ca or they can call our Vancouver office, 604-428-5255. Always happy to talk real estate. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, guys.
2: So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with managing director of William Wright, Corey Wright. Matt, did you know
0: that Corey is William Wright? I this did. Is not. I, <laughs> this is the, uh, I've got my watch talking to me, but this is something that a lot of people don't know. They, you know, I think, I, I would imagine that Corey has had people say to him, William Wright, where's your where's your father? Yeah, right? get your get your old man in the room. I want to talk to the big guns. Yeah,
2: uh, but but in all seriousness, I think it speaks to something about Corey's personality that's a that's a winning kind of component. Very humble guy. Didn't want to talk about the Ernston Young entrepreneur. No, we of the forced year. him. We, we actually brought him. that up as kind of a surprise. Well, it's a
0: huge uh, it's a huge, a huge honor. achievement, right? But
2: but he, the humble nature, you know, you name it. Uh, use your middle name. I don't think he ever said he's the founder. Right, but it's all it's all true and that was a great conversation
0: and uh, we're glad to have him back yeah and we and if we ever use your middle name we should Judith hey. Scalina. <laughs> That'll be, be a great, if we want to make a Judith, Judith Scalina real estate services. Uh, well, where's your mom? <laughs> where's your mom? Here she is. Anyways, uh, what else do we got for the day? What else do we have? We have Vancouver
2: Real Estate Podcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. Head over to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com for things like the live wire. This is our weekly mailer with uh, stats before anyone else, different types of stats, deal of the month. Uh, the the back catalog, what's going on. It's an easy way to keep up to date on, on the show. We also have, of
0: course, private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. For people that may not understand what PCS is, I'm going to simplify this like I do the sold plan. This is literally listings management software where you can put a really specific criteria. It's going to send you listing updates, exactly what you want to see. It's going to show you sold prices in real time and you're not going to miss anything. There's also a favorites folder that you can communicate directly with for showings or, or just stay organized. And you can have multiple emails on this account so and multiple searches. So if you want to actually have, it's great for you know couples that are looking at real estate independently. It's um, great for singles. It's great for couples. Yeah, it's great for everyone.
2: But Matt, how can people get in touch with you? They can try me at
0: 778-847-2854 or matt at com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at com. And of course, we got that nonpartisan
2: Kokomo line info at com. We'll have a great week, guys, and we'll see you next week. Uh, same place, another fantastic guest. We, we've already got in the can. I'm excited to launch that one.
1: Subscribe today.